0: This morning our scripture reading is from John chapter 7, so I'd encourage you to open your Bibles, your mobile devices, uh, to John chapter 7, which is also found on page 1136 in the Bible in your pew. We'll be reading the first 20 verses and then jumping to verse 37. John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of Booth was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And I might add, no one ever since. The reading of God's Word.
1: You know, the, the Internet cuts two ways for uh, preachers. In one way, it is an incredible... Uh, study tool. You could almost put any question you have into the search engine and you will have a wealth, some good, some not so good, on any topic you want. And, And so in a lot of ways, it's been a gift of not having to search through tons of books to get a culmination of thought. The bad side to Google is that you can Google while I'm talking (laughs) and get the same information or others information. And so I can use an illustration. I can tell a story and you, before you walk out of the room, know the rest of the story in its accuracy. And so I love it and I don't love it. I think if Part of it is uh, accountability. I, I think that's, a, that's a, a great thing. This morning, what I would like to do is do a search uh, with you for the real Jesus, who he uh, claimed to be, and allow you to examine the possibilities. In a room of this size, there are people who have already settled the question and have good reasons, good evidences to support their position. Others, they've settled the issue, but don't necessarily have good reasons or good evidences to support. They just have grown up that way, or they've just settled without the evidence. Still others in the room have not settled the issue of who Jesus claimed to be, Or what they believe about what he claimed to be. And because of that, you're here. And so this is an opportunity John has given us in this chapter. Because they ask these very same questions. Who is Jesus? Who does he he claim to be? And if that's who he claims to be, what are we supposed to do with that information of who he claims to be? Is he... Truly the Savior of the world, which is what our text will teach us He claims to be. The context here, we learn in, in verse 1 that Jesus has left Jerusalem where He had been teaching and, and performing some miracles and has gone up to Galilee, which is uh, uh, a little uh, less urban, a little uh, uh, less um, uh, connected to the religious leaders, in Jerusalem, and so it's a, a safer place for Jesus to do some ministry. Because though his ministry has gotten quite popular, it has also gotten quite hot. That is, uh, there are people who follow Jesus because they, they really like the things that he's saying and he's doing, but there are other people that feel threatened and uh, believe that he should be stopped. And our text tells us in in verse two that they're out to kill him in Jerusalem. And that's why he's not there. He's up in in Galilee. But his brothers come to him and say, Hey, Jesus, this movement, you're real popular. You need to go where the people are. And there's a big festival going on down in... Well, actually, it's up because it's up on a mountain. So they tend to refer to Jerusalem as up to Jerusalem, even if you're south of where uh, they are. So they say, let's go up to Jerusalem because there's there's a big party going on in town where literally a million men of our city, of our country will be there. And because your ministry is a public ministry, why don't you go there and let them know again who you claim to be and what you've come to do. Now we know a little later in the text that his own brothers didn't quite believe, that is they heard what he said about himself, because up till this point he has said, I am the bread from heaven. He's also said, I am the living water. He also told uh, someone, I forgive you of your sins. He has also uh, said, uh, uh, before there was, I am. Which is the very name of God, Yahweh, that they weren't allowed to speak. It literally means, I am, I am. And so Jesus is using that language, they know what he's claiming. And so even his brothers have some doubts if not some profound doubts, about who he claims to be. And so they've asked him some important questions. If he's if he claims to be from God, if he claims to be God, what are we supposed to do with that? And they hear what other people are saying. Some are saying he's a good man. He's a good teacher. Some are saying he is a, a deceiver. He's, he's kind of fooled. Pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. And that has a couple of implications. He either does that intentionally or unintentionally. If he's intentionally deceiving, that makes him a liar. If he's doing it unintentionally, it means he's disturbed. He believes his own press. And therefore, there's some concern about him. In the ancient world, they would call that demon-possessed, because that's what our text says. They're lumping into demon possession, not just a spiritual condition, but also a physical or a Physiological issue, all into that same uh, category. But the one thing you don't hear much, but it does say it in this text, is that he is who he claims to be. And so I'm just inviting you this morning into this process, this evaluation of the evidence. But I want to give you two pieces of advice or two. Ideas as you're approaching and evaluating for yourself, no matter where you are on the spectrum. And the first one is uh, uh, simply this idea that you come with some biases. Everybody does. The preacher does. The listener does. Everyone approaches this question and all questions with a set of biases. And be aware of your bias. Be aware that you are taking into the investigation some understandings. Maybe because somebody has taught you. Maybe because you've come to some conclusions on your own. Or just simply you're part of the American culture. And the American culture has an an answer to that question. Who is Jesus? And that has come into your framework. There's nothing wrong with your biases in, in the sense of having a bias. The important thing is to recognize you've got one. So you can recognize it when an evidence confronts your bias. You see, there's nothing wrong with a bias as long as you're open to allowing something to confront or to challenge your bias. The second, and I think this is important as well, is not only to recognize your bias, but Jesus is an all or nothing thing. He's forced us, and you'll see this in a moment, he's forced us into making an all or nothing decision. That is, Jesus doesn't leave many options out there. He's not going to allow you to play the middle. That's what we like, don't we? we? We see two extremes and we say, isn't there a balance? Isn't there something in the middle? Isn't there somewhere we can land that doesn't look this way or doesn't look that way? And, and Jesus really doesn't give you any options because of what he claims. And the evidence that supports those claims leave you with only one option. And because of that, He's an all or nothing. If you, if you conclude that He's who He claims to be, that means it's an all or nothing situation. Alright, with those two, let's go back to this context. In order to understand what's going on, there's a festival, a party, that is going on in Jerusalem. We know that because it says that It's the Feast or the Festival of Booths. Sometimes it's called the the Festival or the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. The reason it's called Booths or Tabernacles, we don't call things Booths or Tabernacles. We call them tents today. That is, there's this big jamboree in Jerusalem around the harvest that is... They, uh, Israel is an agrarian society where, where they, they grow stuff and sell stuff in order to make a living to live. And when harvest first starts to come in, they gather together for a big joyous party that God again has provided food, has provided sustenance. And so they celebrate that. They call that the Festival of Booths. The reason it's called Festival of Booths is because Jerusalem cannot accommodate all of the people who are coming to this party. In fact, every man over the ages of 20, within walking distance, and walking distance is a couple of days, you had to show up for this party. And so, most scholars believe there's about a million men, (laughs) kind of like a million man march, huh? Uh, Comes to Jerusalem to To celebrate harvest that God has provided. And so because there's not enough hotel rooms, and even if there was enough hotel rooms, they can't all afford hotel rooms. So they, they, they either bring stuff or they buy stuff or they make stuff of a place to live, like a tent. And they call that tent a booth or a tabernacle. Kind of like James and John and Peter, when Jesus... Uh, is on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Moses and Elijah and they say, hey, can we make booths, tents for you and the prophets? That's what they do to be able to be there for this big party. And what happens on that big party is that every day starts the same. All of the men who are there, about a million of them, Would gather around the temple to follow the priest. The priest would have in his hand a golden pitcher, and he would take that pitcher. The reason I'm showing you this slide, if you look at at the red arrow, that is the Pool of Siloam. They've discovered it in the last hundred years uh, because it's been buried underneath uh, uh, through an archaeological dig that there is a pool where the people would march from the temple down to this pool and they would dip this pitcher, the priest would pitcher, into the water and carry it all the way back uh, to the temple and pour it onto the altar. All the way to and fro, they've been singing psalms and quoting Isaiah. There's a passage in Isaiah 12 that they would quote about this experience. This is what It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's a messianic uh, a prophecy that when the Messiah comes, he will bring salvation which will result in the joy of the people. And so they're reenacting the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon God's people Onto the altar where sacrifices were. There will be no more sacrifices. Instead, the Spirit will replace the need for sacrifices. That's the idea that's behind this celebration. And they did that every morning. Seven days. This is a week-long party. And they would do it every morning. In the beginning, Jesus says, I'm not going. Because it's not yet my time. I know if I show up. They're going to want to kill me. And it's not yet my time. It's your time, not my time. So his brothers and his followers go up and Jesus comes later. But there's this moment, this dramatic moment, when he's pouring the water on the altar, that it says on the last day, verse 37, on the last day, Jesus stands up and says, I'm the water. I've been what you're looking for. I am the salvation. In fact, it says this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this morning, that's what Jesus is claiming. And that causes people to ask this question. Who does he think he is? But more importantly, who do we think he is? And here we are, 2,000 years later, asking the same question. We have the scriptures telling us what he claimed and what was claimed about him. But who do you say Jesus is? Is he, is he a good man, a good teacher, a moral teacher? Is he trying to fool people either because he's a liar, that is, he intentionally knows he's not who he claims to be, but he's claiming it anyway? Or is he doing it unintentionally? He's trying to fool people, but because he's deluded. And if he's not any of those, that only leaves one option. He's exactly who he claims to be. And we have to deal with that. And so this morning, let's let's do that search. Let's walk ourselves through who Jesus claims to be. You remember that bumper sticker that we used to be on cars in the nineties? Jesus is the answer. It was on the back of loads of cars, and then you started seeing the bumper sticker. But what's the question? The question is, who is Jesus? Have you answered that for yourself? Because all the rest of this doesn't matter if we don't settle that question. If we have not settled who he is and have reason for why we believe who he is, then all of this is a waste of our time. It might be a great way to make some friends... Might be a great way to hear some music. But it doesn't matter. Not really. And so let's uh, examine this, recognizing everybody's got a theory. Let me give you uh, one man's thought. He said this it's printed for you in your worship guide Jesus either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self deceived, and he was the Savior. That's the dilemma. That's the question. Who is he? So I, I want I you to see that one response, one answer is impossible. He's a good teacher. He's a good person. He's a good man. I want to see, see that the other two, that he's a liar or a lunatic, is improbable. You look at his life, you look at his teaching... And it's improbable that he could fall into the category of a deceiver. And then the last one, and I think it's the inescapable option, he's exactly who he said he was. So the first one, if you can begin by seeing in verse 12, he says, Jesus is a good man. In verse 40, they'll say he's he's the prophet. And they typically mean when they say the prophet, talking about the person who will come before the Messiah, who will usher in, kind of the John the Baptist role. If he's not who he uh, claimed to be, then you cannot claim he's good. That is, if you hear what he's claimed about himself, then the one option you can't have is that he's also good. You see, he claims to be The bread from heaven. He doesn't claim that I have the bread from heaven. That is, I have the wisdom. I have the teaching. I have the idea. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, that's a a huge philosophical difference. He's not saying that I've got this secret knowledge that if you'll just come and hang out with me like the philosophers in the Greek world, if you just follow me long enough, you'll get the truth of life. He's not claiming that. He's not claiming that I've learned something from, from study. I've learned... Matter of fact, they said, how does this guy know these kinds of things? He's not a learned man. He's not studied anybody. That's the first question they ask him when Jesus shows up. Where, where, where does this teaching come from? How do you know these things? You're from Galilee. Nobody smart comes from there. No, no learned people are from there. Everybody that's cool, everybody that's in, everybody that, that to educated is from Jerusalem. That's a, that's a question that they, they ask Jesus when they finally get in cornered. Is, Jesus, why do you spend all this time with tax collectors and sinners? By the way, you notice how tax collectors are lumped in with all the sinners. Sorry, you IRS people. They ask him, what's that in, in, implying? That's implying, why aren't you spending the time with us? We're the in crowd. We're, we're the guys who have studied. We've, we've got our mind. We've, we've, we've gone to school. Why aren't you hanging out with us? That's one of the first questions that they want Jesus to answer. Where do you get this information? And Jesus is saying, I got it from my Father in heaven. And he doesn't simply claim I'm an embodiment of that truth. He's saying that I am the truth. I am the life. And not only does he say that, he, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm the living water. You want eternal life? Believe in me. You, he, he's going to say in a chapter, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's, that's a take on something he said earlier when John recorded, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is, I'm beginningless. I'm, I'm from beyond the barrier. I'm beyond the boundary. and so i think it's important is as, as you hear what he's claiming about himself. he, he tells this woman in in chapter 8 your sins are forgiven i forgive you. jews know nobody can forgive on 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 the part of god except for god. they know what he, they know what he's claiming about himself. he's claiming he's claiming not to be a good man. he he's claiming to be god. And therefore, if that's not true about him, he's not the way, the truth, and the life, he's, he's not the bread from heaven, he's not uh, the living water, he's not before Abraham was. If he's not these things, then he can't be a good man. Anybody who claims to be a good man and claims these things, we would call what? A fool. And we call anyone foolish that follows a fool. So the point is, no one in history has ever said these kinds of things and we call them a good man. This is why this is an impossible option to hold. It's impossible because a good man never says these things. Unless they're true. Anyone else making these kinds of claims and they be untrue, unbelievable then we wouldn't follow him, and we would condemn anyone who did. And therefore, this is impossible. And if that's impossible, these two are improbable. That Jesus is a liar or insane. That is, that he's deliberately or unintentionally misleading people. That is, they're not denying he said these things. Someone has said, how do we know that Jesus ever claimed these things? Didn't writers, because Jesus didn't write anything down. All these things were written down by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. How do we know Jesus said these things? Well, one of it is to know that when all of these writings were circulating, that is, when they were written and when people started reading them, were beginning 20 years after he died. Mark is the earliest of the gospel writings. And it's about 15 to 20 years after Jesus died, when all of these statements that Jesus said about himself. so nobody's doubting whether the, the articles said these things. The question is, did he say these things? And if these things are, are circulating among Christians and non-Christians, if somebody thought, like today, could, could have Googled, they would know whether he said these things or not. Because they're still alive, Mary is still alive, John and James and Peter are all still alive. And if he didn't say these things, somebody would have said he didn't say these things. There's no tell-all book by his inner circle that Jesus really didn't say things. We got together and we said, "Hey, Jesus is dead. Our leader's dead. So let's come up with a religion." So what you could say is that this is a recording of what Jesus said because we don't have any evidence in history of anybody saying he didn't say these things. Now you can debate whether they're true or not, but you can't debate whether he said them or not because the evidence, any more than you can say whether Julius Caesar said what Julius Caesar said or Plato, or Aristotle. We have those things. We're not debating whether they said those things. Now, we might debate whether they're true, but we don't debate whether they were said. Because the evidence... the evidence causes us to have only one option. That he said them. Alright, so... either... because he said them, I've got to conclude, he either was deceived... Or he intentionally deceived others. I want to show you how improbable that is by just examining his life. That is, if these things are not true about him, what about his life? Just one example. Who who has more influence over the world? Augustus or Jesus? Nero? Jesus. The reason I picked these two is that both of them are fairly contemporary. Not exactly contemporary, but fairly contemporary. And in the last 50 years, they have discovered Nero's palace and Augustus' palace. You can watch a PBS and they have taken a 3D tour as if those places existed today. That is, they've done the archaeological studies, they've, they've looked at the writings, and they've come to a conclusion, this is what these palaces would have looked like, because they're beneath the, the, the surface of the earth. They're down a few layers, because they had to be dug up. Well, think about it. Augustus was around when Jesus was born. And if I didn't tell you about Augustus, would you know much about Augustus? Nero is primarily known for burning of Rome and the execution of Paul and Peter. But he's not had much influence over Western civilization. And they had these grand palaces. You and I know the, writing, the, the, the the teachings and the life of Jesus. And he had no palace. In fact, he had no home. He had no place That he called his own. One of the things you'll see, if you ever make a trip to to Jerusalem, there's not a house that says Jesus lived here. Kind of like Washington. That guy must have spent a night in a different bed every night of the week. When you consider how many places say George Washington slept here. Wish we could Google that. Jesus had no such place. You will find no place where where people said this was Jesus' house. Because he says the birds have nests, but I have no home, nowhere to lay my head. And yet, within 300 years, Constantine embraces Christianity, and the Roman Empire uh, takes in Christianity, and it is exported and exploded all over the world, to where we we're we're all the way halfway around the world, and we know who Jesus is. G.K. Chesterton, you don't know who he is, he's a reporter. He said, if you found a key lying around your yard, you pick it up, you tried it out on a number of locks, and on one of the locks, it opened it perfectly. What would you assume? He goes on and writes, though it could be a huge coincidence, you assume the most rational explanation is that the key was made by the locksmith who made the lock. The key was designed for that lock. You hear what he's saying? I think that's important, that if you begin to look at Jesus' life, in light of what they said he would come and do, that he would heal the blind, he would uh, uh, allow the, the lame to walk, the dead will rise from the dead, and then you begin to look at his life, and you begin to look at his teaching, you see that they actually match up. Another writer put it this way, Talking about Jesus. He is God. If God be not thus, if he not be like Jesus, he is less than God we crave for. Another way to put it in the 21st century is that if Jesus is not God, then God is less than Jesus. Jesus lived such an incredible life and had such incredible teachings. If he's not God then the God we are following is less than him. What convinced people to live and to die for Jesus? Because he had this incredible, incredible life and teaching. Which brings us to the only option that makes sense. The law of non-contradiction says this. Two things cannot, complain, cannot claim to be both true in the same way at the same time. That is, all religions either can be true. I mean, can't all? either all can be false or one can be true and all the rest can be false. But the one thing we cannot claim is that all the true. Jesus says... In verse 37. On the last day of the feast. Can you imagine this moment? They're pouring water out. Calling for the salvation. Calling for the Holy Spirit to come. And to and to save them. From Isaiah 12. And Jesus stands up on the last day. And says. If anyone thirsts. For the Holy Spirit. Let him come. And, to me and drink. Whoever believes in me. As the scripture said out of his heart will flow rivers of the living water. That's why people said, "Oh, he must be the Christ." It's the only option that fits. This is the key maker. This is the one for whom the key fits the lock perfectly. I think that's important for us as we get ready to come to the Lord's Supper and what we celebrate in that meal when he says, "Do this in remembrance of me." What do you think Jesus is saying? We're we're going to forget him? Is that the concern? That we're just going to forget Jesus? No. He's not worried about you forgetting him. Will you remember what I've done for you? He says, "This, this bread that you eat, I was crushed for you. Because you should have been crushed. Because of your open rebellion against God, because you're a sinner. Because you're part of the human race and even if you weren't guilty because of the human race, you're you're guilty on your own as an individual. And I have come to be crushed in your place. Crushed for your iniquities and by my stripes you are healed. And then he takes this cup, and this cup is the picture of the wrath of God. How do we know that? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays to his Father in heaven, he says, take this cup from me. He he knows that that what's going to happen on the cross is not just simply his death, but all the wrath of God that's due our sin was emptied upon his Son, so that Paul will, will write that he who knew no sin became sin. That's what it means to do this in remembrance of me. So I, I invite you, if, if you've already answered the question, who is Jesus? And you've answered the question, he is the savior of the world. And, and just as importantly, he's my savior. Then you're welcome to the, come to the table to remember what he has done for you. And to enter into that joy. Do you notice that about Isaiah 12? It says when, when salvation comes, the response is joy. The overwhelming emotion of the table, the overwhelming mood is joy. You've been saved. A Savior predisposes that we need salvation.